I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And we're the Trade Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode, we're joined by trade all-star Wendy Cutler for a deep dive into the WTO Director General race. Wendy has interviewed all eight candidates for the top job and will share her insight into the contest, what to look for, and what's coming next. Plus, we'll break down the administration's decision to label Vietnam a currency manipulator and explain why the move may backfire. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Today, we have a very, very special guest, Wendy Cutler, who is former acting deputy U.S. trade representative. She's currently at the Asia Society, where she's in charge of everything in Washington, and she's in charge of trade policy and many other things. But first, we want to talk about good morning, Vietnam. Guys, what has happened in Vietnam? There's a big headline, U.S. finds Vietnam manipulated currency. What's happening? Well, thank you, Robin Williams, for that uh, retro <laughs> Delayed comment. Delayed Robin Williams. We have Every to take time a we do this podcast, we show our age uh, by talking about old movies or old music or old football games, depending on who's doing the talking. Well, no, Scott and I talk about new football games. Scott, is the Big Ten really coming back in October? Is that what I hear? Well, it's not decided yet, but there is pressure to do so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So stay tuned. Well, you know, if playing high school football games in Ohio and playing yes. high school football games in Michigan and Pennsylvania, you know, it's kind of hard to keep the college teams off the field. But yes. I digress. You do indeed. Can we go back to Vietnam for a second? They don't play football there. <laughs> well, don't be too we'll sure. We'll go back I mean. anyway. <laughs> hey, you know, it's fall. We're in September. Football's upon us. And as I said... You know, they just had to open up the bars and the tattoo parlors in Georgia back in the spring. And I kept saying, don't these people want to have football season? They live and die by this. What do they need a bowling alley and a tattoo parlor open for? Anyway, sorry. Anyway, the news is that the Treasury Department has determined that Vietnam is, for trade law purposes, is manipulating its currency. This is significant because uh, this is pushing the envelope a bit on U.S. trade law. The rules say that if you're going to find a, a subsidy, and under WTO rules, if you find somebody else is subsidizing their goods, uh, it's all right to, to countervail, that is to assess an offsetting duty to take away the advantage that the subsidy provides. That's not only our law, that's most countries have that, this law, and it's consistent with WTO rules. The rules say that a subsidy is supposed to be specific. So if I give a steel company $50 million to build a new plant, that's a subsidy that enables them to make their product, period, where they couldn't before. And that's something that you can countervail against. One of the issues that has come up from time to time is if a country keeps its uh, the value of its currency artificially low, is that a subsidy? Because if the currency is artificially low, that means basically that uh, its exports are cheaper uh, and its imports are more expensive, and it's an advantage for them uh, from the standpoint of their trade balance. In the past, most people have said that may be so, but under the rules, uh, it's not a subsidy because it's general and not specific. 
if the currency is undervalued, it affects everything. It doesn't just affect that steel mill or that shoe manufacturer. And the United States and other countries historically have not uh, tried to measure the currency undervaluation and then do it as a subsidy. Uh, the Trump administration Commerce Department announced that they were going to start doing that. Uh, and this is the first case. And it's interesting, partly because it's not a China case. Uh, it's a case involving a, a number of countries and, and their and tires. But uh, Vietnam is the one that they chose to investigate currency for. And the new rules say that commerce is supposed to defer to the Treasury Department figuring this out. Uh, and they did. And Treasury figured it out using a very, very complicated formula that they developed and determined the number is somewhere in the 5% range. I think something slightly more than 5% that the currency is undervalued by that much. This is, will be controversial. It already is controversial. As uh, I think Andrew said before we started, you know, there are lawyers out there getting out the calculators and the billable hours uh, ready to uh, litigate on this one because it's never been done before. Uh, you can make a very good argument, first of all, that it's against the WTO rules, so ultimately we're going to get caught. And second, you can make a very good argument that it really is impossible to determine anyway. You know, what is the right value for a currency? You know, these are currencies that are traded in markets. And most economists will tell you the value is whatever the market says it is. And for somebody to come in, you know, from the side and say, well, it really should be you know, 5% more than it is, is simply, you know, making things up. So we will see how this develops. There are other allegations besides this one of Vietnamese subsidies. So this will get folded in. There will be a number. Duties will be assessed. Uh, the Vietnamese will complain to the WTO. And then we get into our other topic, which is the WTO. And uh, in this case, the dispute settlement system, because the Vietnamese will complain that we've done this. And they'll probably win. But since there's no appellate body and there's no way to finalize these disputes, we'll probably get away with it. And that means that we will probably keep on doing it, at least during the tenure of the Trump administration. Look, this is, this is not a new issue in Washington. The Washington has kicked this around for a number of years. Many members of Congress have taken positions on this. It's shown up in draft bills before. It's been debated. That's the first thing. Second, while uh, subsidies have to be specific, they have a very general definition of anything of value. A subsidy is anything of value. So the argument will probably be made both ways. That's what we have trade lawyers for. Finally, there are occasionally situations where currency manipulation for purposes of trade is actually fairly obvious. Uh, in the last decade, I think it was Switzerland, chose to peg the Swiss franc to the euro. And the explanation they gave to the markets was... Our exporters are getting hurt by the value of the Swiss franc, <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna peg it. Now they couldn't afford the peg over the long period of time, and they had to go back to market actions. So this is a messy area. We've decided to plunge into it now, despite all the mess, and who knows where it ends. For me, it's one more piece of Trumpian unilateralism that we'll live through, and we'll we'll find out where the facts uh, uh, take us. Wendy, what do you think about this? If I could just add, when I was at USTR, you know, this issue was raised a number of times through a number of different administrations, but the decision was not to pursue it, that the countervailing duty law was not the appropriate avenue for pursuing these types of issues and a real fear of, you know, WTO dispute settlement and then having to basically pay compensation to the offending country. 
And that's been the way for the last, well, actually more than 100 years, because this law goes back a long way. In this administration, though, it's one more convention broken. Well, do you all think Vietnam's going to bring a WTO case against the United States? I would if I were they, because I think it's a winner. Wendy, what do you think? I think it's going to be a tough decision for them. Their bilateral trade deficit is exploding now. The administration is focused on them. Do they really want to incur the wrath of the Trump administration? Scott? Absent an appellate body, uh, I think they're going to manage this more delicately than immediately filing a case because there's no way to end the dispute. They could win and the U.S. blocks the panel. Meantime, they've spent time and effort. So they may try something a little more, shall we say, diplomatic than immediately going to dispute settlement. Speaking of the WTO, current Director General Roberto Azevedo announced he'll be resigning a year early, kicking off a race to fill that slot. So the window for countries to nominate candidates is closed and candidates are now campaigning. Today we're talking it's September 3rd. On September 7th, consultations at the WTO will begin to narrow the field from eight candidates to five, and then from five to two, and then they'll select a new director general by the beginning of November. Wendy, you've talked to a lot of these candidates. Can you take us through this? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because what struck me is that having interviewed all eight of them, um, when it comes to substance, there were a lot of commonalities, frankly. They all emphasized that the WTO was in crisis. They all emphasized the urgent need for WTO reform. Most of them said fixing the appellate body, that the dispute settlement issue we just discussed, would be a top priority. And they all kind of looked towards the first um, ministerial that they would have to chair if indeed they got the position where they emphasize the need to have early deliverables to show that the WTO can still function and negotiate. I think what differentiated them from my perspective was more the um, emphasizing kind of the experience and the skills and the know-how they would bring to the position. Some of them emphasized that they knew trade really well. Others said, oh, no, I don't know trade, but that's actually a plus because trade experts haven't been able to solve these issues. And others emphasized, look, I'm a politician. I can pick up the phone and call a leader of any other country and solve these issues. And you really need political will, not technical competence to solve these issues. So for me, I was more struck by the difference in style and experience they were underscoring versus differences in substantive positions. Can we talk about some of the different candidates? I mean, there's a candidate from Mexico, Nigeria, Egypt, Moldova, Korea, Kenya, uh, Saudi Arabia, and I believe the UK. Is that right? Do I have all of them? Yes. I think if you have eight, you, I think you've got all of them. I think I got all of them. So can we talk about some of them individually and some of their, who do you think is ahead, behind? Well, it seems the conventional wisdom is that the two African women in particular, um, Dr. Ngozi, um, former World Bank vice chair from Nigeria, and Amina Mohamed, now minister but former um, WTO ambassador from Kenya, are the front runners. But anything can change. I think both of them I found to be extremely impressive, both well-prepared. The big difference is, is that Mohamed comes with a lot of trade experience while Dr. Ngozi was emphasizing that her strength is she can bring a fresh look to these issues. 
and she's the former finance minister. Correct. And so, so she's one of those type of people that can pick up the phone and call world leaders. Right. And given her World Bank position, she also said her access to you know other leaders and other political figures was one of her strengths. And of course, Nigeria is a hugely growing economy and she had a high profile. So that, that gives her an advantage, you think? Again, it depends what the members are looking for. And, you know, when I interviewed them, this was all kind of in a public forum. So what they're saying publicly could be very different than what they're saying privately as they meet with individual delegations, both in capitals and Geneva. We don't know what they're saying privately, but each member is going to have to make their own decision about who they'll support um, or who they could live with. Guys, you want to jump we in We at CSIS interviewed them in a private forum, which is not the same as what they say to ambassadors. But I can tell you they pretty much same, said the same thing privately to us that they said publicly to Wendy. If I were answering the question, I would have said the same things that she said. But if they're meeting with Ambassador Lighthizer, they're probably saying something different, I would suspect. They're saying America first. Well, I've been told directly <laughs> that he's now talked to all of them. I don't have any report on what he thinks. He was asked when he was testifying in the summer about his criteria, and one of them was they can have no whiff of anti-Americanism. I think it's hard to find any of them that do. In, in fact, one of the things that, that has struck me about the eight is that I don't think any of them are horrible, and I don't think any of them are anti-American. So you have kind of a, a complicated choice to make of a bunch of, of talented, acceptable people. Well, we, I mean, we do have good relationships with all of these countries. Well, yes, but keep in mind, this is a process that is almost like joining a secret society. All right. It's, it's very easy to blackball somebody. And, and you can be eliminated, not because you have very little support, but you have objection from the wrong corners. So this is the skull and bones of the trade world. Yeah, there's a geopolitics version of skull and bones. Is a good I suppose way to you could it. say it is a little bit like the fraternity rush process. But I would also say the initiation is not the same. True. It may be worse in some respects, but it's not physically worse. By the way, some of these universities that are holding rush, maybe not such a good idea right now during COVID. Just saying. Well, no, unless you think that uh, alcohol kills COVID germs. There are some people running that experiment at the moment. We'll, we'll get back to you on the results. Quite a few, but I think I know what the result's going to be. Yeah, not good. On the candidates, when we talked to them, I, I think what our group that interviewed them was trying to figure out was, and it was really reading between the lines, because again, as Wendy said, they all said the same thing. Are you going to be activists uh, or not? And looking at it historically, you know, it's a member-driven organization. They make decisions by consensus, and that means that people can block things. And it is a little bit like a black ball system. And there have been different styles in the past. There have been some directors general who basically sit and wait for the consensus to arrive and then jump on it uh, and try to capture it and then cajole people into agreeing with it. And there's others that have been more aggressive in the beginning uh, and have gone so far as to put their own proposals out there uh, and do a little arm twisting. And I have to say, if you look at past records, there's not a lot of evidence that one approach works better than the other. We've seen activist DGs who have not accomplished very much and, and less active DGs who have accomplished some things too. So it's not clear what the right answer is. In our meetings, they all said they were going to be activists. But then you had to kind of interpret between them, you know, who was telling the truth and who probably wouldn't be that way. Yeah, but most said, I will be an activist, but I recognize it's a member-driven organization and I'll work with all the members very closely. 
The external criteria, which Wendy alluded to, have been basically gender, geography, and status. There's a whole school of thought that says, as she pointed out, you need to have been or be a minister. Um, Azevedo's highest rank was ambassador. And there are some people who've always felt that he really wasn't able then to talk peer-to-peer with trade ministers or heads of state, where former ministers or current ministers were able to do that. I think we now have four of each. I think we have Mohammed and Gozi, Ulyanovsky, and Minister Yu of Korea. We have four that are either current or foreign ministers. And then we have others that are, Liam Fox was a state secretary, which I guess is almost a minister. Uh, and then you get the gender thing. It's become politically correct. And I think probably substantively uh, wise to say it's past time for a woman leader. There's never been one at the WTO. And I would say of, of the eight, probably three of the most qualified are the women uh, who are from Nigeria, Kenya, and Korea. I think in, in Europe in particular, there's a lot of sympathy for supporting an African woman. As you know, the first thing that the new EU commission President Ursula von der Leyen did when she came in. Her first trip was to Ethiopia, and they're making a, a major play in the EU to improve African relations. So is China, as it happens. So is the United States. You know, we've started the free trade agreement negotiation with Kenya. So there's a lot of people that think in the end it's going to be an African woman. The problem is, if it were only one, this would be a very easy decision. But there's two, and they're both good. But as Wendy said, they're both different. And one of the things that worries me, if they end up being the last two, it may be very difficult to make a decision. You know, the other interesting thing about gender that struck me was that, yes, three of the eight candidates are women, but a number of the male candidates underscored the importance of dealing with gender issues in the WTO and also hiring more women at the WTO secretariat particularly at senior level positions. Well, you can see that in their current lineup. There are four, and there consistently have been four deputy directors general, uh, all of whom right now are men. So saying that you're going to alter the uh, diversity of of the group is not a small uh, promise. And it may also not be that easy to do because those jobs, the senior jobs, in my observation, tend to be divided up regionally. You know, there's always an American deputy There's always a European deputy. There's, uh, I think, almost always an African or Latin American deputy. And there's always an Asian deputy. And the regions hold on to that that slot, you know. The Americans are going to insist that there be a deputy. That they can find a qualified American woman for that position. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're talking to one right now. Here's your chance. There would be many. I'm not throwing my hat in the ring. Including our (laughs) guests. Well, you know, aside from race and gender, are there other issues that they're looking for in this director that we haven't talked about yet? Well, geography. The Africans argue it's their turn. The last one was Brazilian. Most of them have been European over the years. There was one from Thailand 15, 18 years ago. There was one from New Zealand. Right. Uh, The one before Azevedo was uh, Pascal Lamy, who was French. And in general, the the Europeans have kind of dominated. I mentioned to someone, one of Wendy's former colleagues, that there'd never been an African DG. And the immediate response is, well, there's never been one from North America either, which is true. But Sieta, who is Mexican, who's one of the candidates, depending on where he is, will claim either that he's uh, North American or Latin American, depending upon the audience that he's talking to. So wait, why are we not nominating Wendy for this? There's never been a North American and there's never been a woman. So like, why are we not just, you know, nominating Wendy? 
generally speaking, nominating, if the Americans nominate someone, it's kind of the kiss of death. Or if the Americans support anyone overtly, it's the kiss of death. (laughs) One of the things you can be reasonably confident of, I mean, who knows, Trump being Trump may someday just start tweeting, the WTO should support so-and-so, you know, whoever he fancies at the moment. In which case, their candidacy is at an end. Yeah, that that kills them off if Trump is for them. And I think Lighthizer's advice will be, don't do that. And the one thing you could be confident of is Lighthizer's not going to do that. You are never going to know for certain what the U.S. position is. And it doesn't become public. Virtually the only countries that are public in supporting someone are the countries that nominated the eight candidates. So you know that Moldova is supporting Tudor Ulyanovsky because they nominated him. Everybody else is going to keep quiet because if they don't keep quiet, it's like Abraham Lincoln said, when every time he nominates a judge, he produces 99 enemies and one ingrate. You know, if, if you come out for a particular candidate, you're offending the other seven countries. Nobody wants to do that. Okay, please explain to me, this is a dumb question probably, but Moldova is a tiny country. How is Moldova up for this big job? Well, they put somebody forward. The way it works is the country has to nominate. You don't self-declare. You can't just run. The country has to decide they want you. I think if you look at the thing, sometimes smaller countries kind of have an advantage because they haven't offended anybody. I don't think you're ever going to see an American or a Chinese DG because you simply, simply have too big an investment in the organization and too many issues. Small countries, you know, if you've got a really competent person from a small country, Mike Moore was prime minister of New Zealand. You know, New Zealand, generally speaking, hasn't offended anybody. Yeah, I was going to say that's the example of a small country prevailing. Likewise, in the previous DG nomination battle, Annabelle Gonzalez of Costa Rica did extremely well. And she, she could have easily gotten the job. Uh, but, but Costa Rica is smaller than Chicago. You know, so and some's the country, and also some's just the person and the personality. And right. you know, some of them have had great careers in Geneva and have really been successful in bringing delegations together to reach agreements. I mean, Amina Mohammed, she emphasized that she chaired the ministerial in Kenya a few years ago when an important deal on agriculture was reached. So, in her view, you know, she's demonstrated that she can bring folks together to to make a deal. At the same time, she's the only one that's been through this before. She was a candidate in 2013 and didn't make the first cut. And the gossip was didn't make that good an impression. She then had a very successful uh, ministerial conference in 2015 that Wendy just talked about. And she got the chariot because it was in Nairobi and she was Kenya's trade minister at the time. And she got very high marks for doing that. And the gossip in Geneva was in, in July, you know, they had a beauty contest in Geneva where all eight of them showed up and, and made presentations to the ambassadors. Uh, and the word was she did a very good job at that time. So let me ask Scott this. How does the United States get what we want out of this? Well, it, it's always very delicate in this process because we can't be overt for the reasons given. And in some cases, you've got to manage the process. Ultimately, this process is like that old Sarah Lee commercial. Everybody doesn't like something, but nobody doesn't like Sarah Lee. So you've got to wind up with a candidate that that can build consensus. But it's got to be managed just like that. And usually, it's our ambassador in Geneva who handles what are ultimately very delicate politics. I will say that the United States has never really been harmed by a director general. There have been director generals who've been better or worse, 
but I can't point to one who was actually anti-American or or worked against us. Often there are issues of trust that undermine a DG in a lot of ways. For me, the issue here for the United States is to allow the process to work, that you get somebody who has a possibility of success. But ultimately, my view is that WTO's problems will not be solved by picking the perfect director general. And so let's pick someone who has the consent of the members and work on what the real problems are, which aren't you know, a new DG. Wendy? I think the United States is going to have very strong views. I don't think they're going to be, you know, made public, but I also think they're going to want assurances on the appellate body on how, you know, dealing with non-market economies like China are going to be handled. And so I think the United States is in private meetings is going to be really questioning these candidates and trying to get a much firmer sense of, you know, where they are on these critical issues for the United States. And I think the one area that I would say was disappointing in all of the meetings we had, most of the candidates, I think, had very fuzzy answers on China. You know, we asked all of them about how to deal with China. Uh, that was one of Lighthizer's criteria that he made public, that they need to uh, acknowledge that uh, the WTO is not equipped to deal with China. Well, I mean, Wendy, you should comment from the public events, but I don't think any of them had much to say about the China that was useful. I agree with you. And we really tried to probe because for a U.S. audience, you know, this is the question. Many of them said, well, I've experienced both working with China and the U.S., so I'll sit down with both. I'll build trust. I'll find common ground. But very none of them were willing to kind of take positions on any of these issues. And understandably so. Again, you don't get voted in by a majority. This is done by consensus, meaning China and the U.S. have to both be okay with the candidate. So what can we expect by November? Do we think this process is going to go smoothly? We're going to have a new director. Everybody will be happy with the director. Sound process, fair process. What do we think, Wendy? Well, I think it would go smoothly if we weren't having a presidential election. I think the fact that this process is supposed to conclude right around the presidential election may lead a number of countries to basically want to bide their time and to see who will win our election. And if it is Biden, they may think that the U.S. will have different views on a candidate, which may be more to their liking. I think because they have this winnowing process where they narrow them uh, in successive tranches, I think it'll, it'll depend a lot on who the last two are. I mean, I, I don't know that we want to be too specific about who's likely not to make the first cut, but I think there's some agreement that in some cases there are some candidates that might be weaker than others. And then there's some candidate countries that might have more baggage than, than others for reasons that are totally unrelated to the WTO. But I think there's a disposition in a lot of quarters, as I said earlier, to support one of the African woman candidates if you can get consensus around one of them. And the fact is there's two. I can see a difficult scenario developing where it's narrowed to two uh, and is narrowed to uh, Ngozi and Amina Mohammed, and countries are going to be reluctant to choose between them. They represent two significant countries in Africa. If the African Union is divided and can't endorse one over the other, countries may not want to pick because of the risk of offending the other, and that would suggest you know, an impasse that might go on for some time. I think the winnowing process is undertaken by the ambassadors that chair the three big WTO committees. And right now, they're the ambassadors from New Zealand, Honduras, and Iceland. And what they're going to be doing starting next week 
is they're going to meet with the ambassadors of all the other members. That's 161 other ambassadors to figure out who they want. And then they're going to do it again. They're going to do it once and narrow the list to five. Then they're going to do it all again. I talked to somebody who did this in 2013, and he said in the end they had 470 meetings just to try to figure out where countries were, were coming from. If they do their job well, I think they may create a situation where the last two consist of one of the African women and somebody else. And in that context, I think then it'll be the last woman standing, and it'll be whichever African woman they choose. But choosing between them is hard. They're both qualified. They both have interesting backgrounds. At the same time, they're both different. And there really is a choice. Actually, I should bring up one of the pieces of information that has come out is that Dr. Ngozi from Nigeria turns out to be an American citizen, oh, as well as a Nigerian citizen. Dual citizenship. Yeah, she's a dual citizen. Two of the others are as well. The Egyptian candidate also has Swiss citizenship, and the Mexican candidate also has Lebanese citizenship. The difference is that the other two disclosed that fact in their biographies from the beginning, and Ngozi did not. She sort of was outed uh, in the media. And, you know, people that are listening to this that are in Washington know that from Washington experience, sometimes the cover-up is worse than the crime. And had this been uh, common knowledge from the beginning, probably nobody would have paid any attention. That it comes out late in the process from the media, it's hard to say, you know, one day later whether this is going to make a difference or not. It shouldn't, but it might. Yeah, it just may raise questions of her impartiality. Why wouldn't she have disclosed it? We don't know, and it's hard to speculate. Uh, I mean, it may harm her candidacy. We don't, we don't know yet. But look, it's one of these things. The WTO has an opportunity to run this process at a time when everyone's looking elsewhere, including our own presidential election. And if they can avoid a train wreck, we might have the next director general without much drama at all, which I think would be a good thing for the organization. Well, Wendy... Trade guys, thank you very much for all this insight today. This is a lot to process and we'll have to keep on this because it's, you know, something we talk about almost every week. So thanks again, Wendy. Great having you on the show. I hope we can have you back sometime really soon. Thanks. This was fun, but I want to be a trade guy too. <laughs> Absolutely. Open invitation. We'd love to have you. I mean, look at these two grumpy old guys. We need some, you know, we need somebody to, to get them going. Somebody younger. Your yes. important counterpoint to what we have to offer. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to have you be on our show with us anytime. So thank you for well, being thank here. Thank you. I'll have to study up on football, though. Yeah, well, you know, that's part of it. Bill tolerates us, you know, so. Yeah, barely. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks again. Hey, thanks for listening to The Trade Guys. If you would like to learn more about U.S. trade policy and politics, we hope you'll consider enrolling in our online Crash Course with the Trade Guys, offered this September 21st and 22nd. The course will help you develop a deeper understanding of trade laws, the interplay between Congress and the executive branch, and the politics of trade over the years. Tuition is $1,000, and you can register by clicking on the link in the podcast description. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.